Let's open our Bibles to John 3 and take a few minutes before we direct our attention to the Lord's table. John chapter 3, we will not get all the way through that third verse. Verse 2 is uh, more of a situational verse. Verse 3 has precious doctrine that we love and we will introduce ourselves to it, remind ourselves of some things. And let's not leave this sermon by God's grace without thinking of the evidence of being born again. John chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And amen. If you recall the slides that we used for our review of our 35-year anniversary as a church, we were once among the Pharisees. And we had about four crossings of the Red Sea that delivered us from different combinations of errors to where we stand today. And if the Lord wants to lead us across another Red Sea, we're ready to follow. But we, when we read the verse, there was a man of the Pharisees. We, men and women and children, were once among them and lots of the rules of the Pharisees. But the Lord Jesus came to us and we're thankful. Verse 2, very quickly. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night for fear of the Jews. He maintained his position with the Sanhedrin or the ruling class of the Pharisees because we still find him among them in John 7, a full year or two later because of the Passover feast that we have in between. Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, Rabbi, that's a title of respect. We've already found it in John chapter 1. It was started in the first century B.C. by the Jews to the doctors of the law as a teacher worthy of public respect. The Bible internally compares it to master itself as another word for it, a chief teacher. Now, Nicodemus says, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. We. You know, sometimes we use we when we want to include others with us to make ourselves not so prominent in a statement because we happen to know what the Pharisees thought of the Lord Jesus Christ because we're told in other places and they did not think that Jesus did His miracles by the power of God, but rather by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. If you look at Matthew chapter 9, which is relatively early on in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and verse 34, the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 24. The Pharisees heard it. They said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. So that was the common theme among the Pharisees, and they ended up crucifying him for their unbelief in the miracle power of the Holy Ghost 
that was upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But this man said, We know that thou art a teacher come from God. And he came to learn more about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is some of the circumstantial evidence that we lead myself to believe that he was probably, likely, born again. But I still maintain everything I told you earlier, that that is not the importance of the lesson, and there isn't value in it, and God doesn't declare it clearly. But this is a wonderful statement by him. Though there were others that I want to remind you that believed on Jesus because of his miracles, but they were not children of God. We just want to keep those things in balance. We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. That is a wonderful declaration and absolutely true. When we read the gospel accounts, Matthew through John, and see the miracles performed there, we say the same thing. Why didn't everyone believe on Jesus Christ? Because the miracles that were performed were stupendous. Stupendous miracles, incredible miracles. Raising men from the dead, feeding 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes, stopping a violent storm and making it a great calm, casting out devils, numerous all kinds of miracles done by the Lord Jesus Christ. Nicodemus is impressed by them, comes to him and declares things that others were unwilling to declare. The Pharisees didn't really care about miracles. When you go to John chapter 11, where John raised Laz- where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it tells us after that long account that the Pharisees got together, and here's the language after a man is raised from the dead. Here is a council of the Pharisees. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. We can tell you what you should do. Repent and believe and get baptized. But let me finish what they said. What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. We'll lose our jobs. Isn't that incredible? That you can recognize that a man was raised from the dead, get together with the other guys that went to seminary, and sit down together and agree that, uh, you know what, we've got to protect our jobs. If we let this go, we're going to lose our jobs. Have men ever done anything like that before? Have ministers ever compromised truth for their jobs before? All too often. Lord, save us from any such thing. When we go back here and look at back to John chapter 3 and the words of Nicodemus about seeing the great miracles of God, I want to remind you of this statement from Luke chapter 11 and verse 20. Jesus has cast out a devil. The Pharisees said, he's casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub. Jesus said, well, if I'm casting them out by the power of Beelzebub, that means Satan's kingdom is divided and Satan's kingdom is not divided, number one, so it's not true. Number two, if I'm doing it by the power of Beelzebub, who in the world are your gypsies doing it by? That was enough said for the Jews to realize that uh, they had a weak position that they were taking. But then Jesus said this, but if I, 
with the finger of God in casting out devils, then no doubt the kingdom of God is here. Now what are we about to hear from Jesus? That except you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Miracles which no man can do but God himself. Jesus said, if I, with the finger of God, am casting out devils, then no doubt the kingdom has arrived because there is a son of David on earth that has the finger of God. Right. That's Luke 11, verse 20. Let's go to verse 3. Brethren, you, do you understand the time and the constraints right now? So this is going to be a hasty introduction, and then we want to get to the Lord's Supper. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To truly see Jesus performing miracles by the power or finger of God was evidence of a person having been born again. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to see it. And most of the nation, and if we want to go by the statistics from Isaiah chapter 6, then 90% of the nation couldn't see it. They could not see what was happening with Jesus of Nazareth being there. Except a man. When we find the use of a word like this, except, we are having an axiom laid down for us. This is a law and a rule of the religion of Jesus Christ that unless a man is born again, he cannot see, he does not have the ability to perceive and discern the operation of God in this world and that Jesus was God's son with divine power. It's a, it's a rule. And so we're, we're having a rule established to Nicodemus, which we're benefiting from, that Nicodemus did not understand. He had never heard it before. It's not taught in the Old Testament like this. It's only obscurely there about how God puts the fear of the Lord into men's hearts and not into others. And the Spirit of God comes upon men and not upon others. It's only obscure there. This is new doctrine. You can't find it in Matthew. You can't find it in Mark. You can't find it in Luke. And you can't find it in Acts. It's John. God chose John to give us born-again truth. But this, this except, look in, the, look in third, the third verse, Jesus has used his double verily again. There's, there's 25 of them in the Gospel of John and nowhere else in the Bible. The Gospel of John, verily, verily of a truth, amen, this is a certainty, is what that word means. I say unto thee, except... A man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There is only one way to be able to to discern and to perceive and to believe and to embrace the kingdom of God. You can't see it without this particular operation that is being introduced here, and that is to be born again. Therefore, regeneration becomes an incredibly important fact for each of us. The first priority is for us to ascertain whether we've been born again or not. And it's of secondary importance that we clearly grasp how it actually occurs. Spiritual discernment and living, spiritual living, spiritual discernment is of great importance for us to prove that we are without condemnation in the sight of God by being born again and having that vital principle and new nature put in us that loves God. Be born again. We have the words given to us. Be born again, but we've already had the word born. We had the word born back in John chapter 1. Except a man be born again. At break time, I had a very interesting conversation with several men describing their devotions last evening with 
seven and five-year-old children about being born again. And in one of the cases, the mother was pregnant, and so the children were asking, you know, is the baby born? And then they go back inside, just like Nicodemus in verse 4. And so it was explained to them, no, this is a different kind of a birth. This is a spiritual birth that takes a person from hating God to loving God by being born spiritually so that we get a new nature and principle and desire and spirit inside of us that loves God. And it's a change from what we were before. But it's called being born again. And that word born we had in verse 13 of John chapter 1, which were born. Do you remember, and I believe this is important for you to remember, that John opened his gospel with 18 verses of a preamble or an introduction or a forward, whatever word you want to use for it, to open up his gospel. And at verse 19, he begins with details about the ministry of John the Baptist. But there is an 18-verse, very powerful preamble, introductory statement where he's covering all the doctrines you're going to learn in the Gospel of John and just stating them in a summarized format. And he taught us, it wasn't the words from Jesus' mouth, it wasn't words from John the Baptist's mouth, it's our writer by the Holy Spirit telling us before we get into the content of the book that Jesus was in the world, He made the world, but the world didn't know Him. He came to His own, the Jewish people. They had prophecies all about Him. He performed His miracles to them, but they rejected Him. But some received Him. And those some that received Him, a small minority had been given power by God to become His sons, and they had been born of God. That's John 1, uh, 10 through 13. That is in the summary. So in the summary, we have the glorious statements of the Trinity and the glorious statements of the incarnate sonship of Jesus Christ. All in 18 verses, before we get into the content, and why I'm telling you this is because it is very irritating To find all those that, when I say all those, I mean 99% of those that call themselves conservative Bible-believing Christians, they want to run to John 3.16 without reading the preamble to the book that they're using. Is that fair? Is that right? Is that righteous? Is it wise? There is a preamble that gives us the context and lays out doctrine in germ form, in, in very summarized, concise form in those 18 verses. And look back and see verse 13 and the value that it has before we get to 3.3. Why would someone want to tell me about John 3.3 and John 3.5 without showing me John 1.13? Many of us memorize John 1.12 as children, but without verse 13. Many of us heard John 1.12 over and over and over ad nauseum without verse 13. Verse 13 tells us how verse 12 happened and how it didn't happen. And it's a great summary verse that we want when we go into John 3, 3. How is a man born again? How is he born again? It's not of blood. It's not of the will of flesh. It's not of the will of man. It's of God. And that tells us what we're going to learn in John 3, 1 through 8, but in a very summarized fashion. 
And this being born makes us the children of God, according to verse 12. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, which were born. How do you become a natural son? By being born. How do you become a spiritual son of God? By being born of God. When you're born of your father, you're a natural son to him or a natural daughter. We're using sons here because the Holy Spirit did. Verse 13. Verse 12 does not end with a period. And remember, I taught verses 12 and 13 very carefully several months ago, and they can be listened to again. But notice the last verb in verse 12 is in the present tense. Them that believe on his name. That believe present tense is then followed by the born of verse 13, which were born. Past tense, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not of blood. Regeneration or being born again is not of your racial descent. It's not by your genealogy. That was a very real issue with Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul and the Jews because they put so much stock in their relationship to Abraham. They thought because they were the children of Abraham, thereby they were the children of God. And in in these few words, the Holy Spirit in this introductory statement is able to blow that away in just the words, not of blood. It is That's as concise as you can get in language. Not of blood. Verse 13. I love that 13th verse. I was telling some men at break time today that when you see someone reading Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, I want to remind you that his final sermon preached from his deathbed was John 1, 13. Which were born not of blood. So race is completely blown out. John the Baptist had to deal with it. When the Pharisees came to his baptism in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, he said, don't think that you've got Abraham to your father to help you in this matter. Jesus is coming to judge this nation and Abraham isn't going to help you. Jesus had the same problem with the, with the same kind of Jews in John chapter 8. They said, we be Abraham's children. We've, al- we've always been free. We don't need you to make us free. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, why are you trying to kill me? Abraham didn't try any such thing. Oh, Jesus is wonderful in John chapter 8. The Apostle Paul, when he preaches the, writes the book of Galatians to the churches of Galatia, has to deal with the same thing, that the real children of Abraham are Jews and Gentiles that are in Christ. Galatians chapter 3. So it's blown out. So if anybody ever tries to sell you something about regeneration that means it's racially or family or ancestrally uh, obtained, they're wrong. Next, it says in John 1, 13, nor of the will of the flesh. Now, there's, you can only be two things. John 3, 6 is going to tell us that you can only be two things. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. When you meet a man that's not saved, using their terminology... When you meet a man that's not saved, what is he? He's flesh. So you're going to try to get him to do something in his flesh with the will and choice and decision-making apparatus of his flesh in order to become spirit. That's what your goal... That's That should be so obvious. Every person that has ever manipulated into inviting Jesus into their heart in order to be born again, as they all believe, that means you are manipulating the flesh part of him, in order for him to get a spirit part of him. 
See, we believe that God gives the spirit part of a man and then we preach the gospel to that spirit part. The spirit part believes because it's already got a spirit part that is able to believe and willing to believe and wants to believe. But it says in John 1.13, which were born not of the will of the flesh. So it is not some fleshly decision that you get a sinner to make that leads to them being born again. This language is powerful. It's wonderful. It's conclusive. It's summary. It's glorious. It's not of the will of the flesh. We do not believe that you can get, you can do anything by willing or choosing to be born again, nor can you help your children do it. But that gets to the next point. We're not there quite yet, though we need to get there in a hurry. Not of the will of the flesh. Except a man be born again, he cannot see. And so we need to be born again in order to be able to see the kingdom of God in operation, to know that Jesus is a king, to know that he's got a righteous and glorious reign. We've got to be born again, but how are we born again? It's not of blood, and it's not of the will of the flesh. Neither is it by the will of man. So you can't do it for anyone else. Now when you think of the 2.2 billion Christians on earth, 2.1 billion of them believe that it's by baptism. Yeah, that's about 95%. Believe that it's by baptism. Two ways. Either you get your little babies there to be baptized by pouring or sprinkling or rubbing by a thumb in the form of a cross on the forehead. That's, That's how they're born again. By a priest doing that to them. Or... It's a believer's baptism in order for the remission of sins like the Church of Christ and others that you are baptized in water as a believer in order to get rid of your sins. In that case, it's the will of the flesh going into the waters of baptism, professing to be a believer, and coming out with spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And they say that it happens in the waters of baptism. So you've got a man in the flesh to do something in order to get born again. And what does the Bible say about anything like that? He, the, the, Whoever is in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 7 and 8. If you just can't please God in the flesh because the, you wouldn't want to. You don't even want to please God in the flesh because your flesh hates God. How about the babies? A mother and a father bring their little baby to the door of a Catholic church and have some water rubbed in its forehead, salt shoved in its mouth, the devil thrown out the eastern door, and all the other aspects of the Roman Catholic ritual of baptism in order to be born again. It's called baptismal regeneration. We deny it on the authority of John 1.13 that says it is not of the will of man, because that's a father and a mommy bringing their little baby. And You know who they bring along with them? A, grand, a, a godparent, a godfather and a godmother. Godparents to help that little baby. So you've got these four adults that have this little baby in some christening gown. Hate christening gowns. Don't, don't bring your baby to church in a christening gown and bring it up front. If you want to sit in the back row with a christening gown, we'll allow it. They're pretty. Make it a girl. Infant baptism. Our relatives have fought and died over infant baptism. They, these four adults believe that they can get their little baby born again. But it's not of the will of man, all in one verse. Who? What is the new birth by? God. God. You know what we're going to get in John 3, 8? The wind bloweth where it listeth. That means the wind blows wherever it wants to, 
and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. You don't know where the wind's coming from, and you don't know where the wind's going next. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit of God. Because it's, it's by God's choice, it's by God's operation that we're born again. Never forget John 1.13. John 1.13 is more definitive than John 3.3. John 3.3 just lays out an axiom, except a man be born again. Where you want to prove how they're born again and how they're not born again, it's not in John 3.3. We have to go elsewhere. Now John 3.5 is going to help us out a little bit by involving the Holy Spirit of God in a very unique way that forces Titus 3.5 to be an important cross-reference. Verse 8 of John chapter 3 is going to tell us it's the Holy Spirit of God operating like the wind. But John 1.13 is the best, most definitive single verse in the Bible about how we are and are not born again. Now, did you look up any verses in 1 John last night? Look at Philippians 2.13. We want to ask ourselves a few questions before the Lord's Supper. Philippians chapter 2. We, the most important thing is whether we've been born again or not. This, op, this secret operation of the Holy Spirit of God giving us a new nature, changing us completely, it's, it's as dramatic and, and, and as profound as a human birth. We come into existence. We have the gift of life. We don't even, when do you first know that you're alive? I mean, where you can consciously think, I'm alive. I can think about me. I can think about my thoughts. How long does that, when, when did you first have your experience? Was it in a tree fort someplace or, or were you in high school? <laughs> oh. Uh, you're given existence. You're given life. You're given abilities, and you don't even know it for a number of years right. until you you know, I exist. Who am I? Why am I here? Where did I come from? What is my purpose? All those questions, you got that the first time, and you didn't do a thing. You just woke up one day, and somebody started telling you that, that you had your own individual, unique existence. You know what? We're born again the same. We're born again. Trust me, brother, next Sunday we will go through the words that the Holy Spirit has chosen. And when he chose the words born again, he, met, he intended for us to compare it to our first birth. Right. And when you think about that first birth, are you thinking with me right now? You were not even conscious of what had taken place. And an incredible miracle had taken place that you had a unique, eternal soul in existence in this universe. And you didn't even know it. You had a whole set of abilities, existence, and life. Then you find out about it. Mm -hmm. And you continue to find out more about it. And you get more and more serious about it as you go through life. And you know what it's like when we're born again? It's just like that, but it's spiritual. We're given life, we're given existence, and we're given a whole set of abilities of a spiritual sort. And it's only by this that starts to draw it forth out of us so that we come to appreciate more and more and use that set of abilities that we were given by being born again. Philippians chapter 2. We've only got a couple of minutes. Philippians 2, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye, Philippians 2, 12, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, 
but now much more in my absence. Paul was away from the church at Philippi. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. We can simply ask ourselves, am I choosing and actually performing the pleasure of God? Am I doing what pleases God? Is my daily choice and is my daily effort to choose and to do what pleases God? If it is, God worked that in you. Well, how did He work that in you? Regeneration. You were born again. We only define what pleases God by what the Bible says. And so simply, the evidence that you want, the evidence that I want, the evidence that we want as a church, is do we choose daily and do we perform daily by the by effort to do those things that please God? And we should be working that out with fear and trembling every day to prove that we are truly born again. Can, can you see that in these two verses? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God which worketh in you, both the will and to do of His good pleasure. He's put it in you. Now work it out. And work it out seriously with some degree of concern in the matter because it's the proof of your eternal life. When you went to 1 John, I don't have time to turn you there. When you went to 1 John, I had you look up seven verses. Did you find four evidences of eternal life? I need to hear one. Work righteousness, 229. Love the brethren, 314, 47, 51. Believe, 1 John 5, 1. Not continuing in sin, don't sin. Stated very clearly by the, ex, by the expert Bible writer about being born again. No one else talks about being born again like the Apostle John does in his gospel and his first epistle. Believe, love, stop sinning, and do righteousness. That's how we know we're born again. It's not a little decision for Jesus. When you make a decision for Jesus, God's already worked it in you to make a decision for Jesus. If you make a real one for Jesus. So you're already too late. You were already born again before you did that. This is the word of the Lord to us about being born again. We want to come and celebrate what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Do you understand and do you remember, all of you, that God chose us in Christ before the world began? In eternity past, Jesus died for us 2,000 years ago. We are regenerated sometime between conception and death. The gospel is preached to us and only has a benefit after that. And we shall be glorified for eternity to come. And it's all laid out in the Word of God. And being born again is just one part of it to give us the nature that is pleasing to God, acceptable to Him. We can be partakers of the divine nature. We can know Him, love Him, have fellowship with Him, which we could not do when we were in the flesh. But now we can when we're in the Spirit. And the more we walk in that new born-again nature, the closer our fellowship is with Him until we are filled with all the fullness of God, even on this side of eternity. And the other side of eternity, meaning when we're with Him, will be unbelievably fantastic. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.